a reading from scripture from 1 Samuel 18, 6 through 9. As they were coming home, when David returned from killing the Philistine, the women came out of all the towns of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they made merry. Saul has killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Saul was very angry. For this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day on. And then from 1 Samuel 19, 8 through 17. Again, there was war, and David went out to fight the Philistines. He launched a heavy attack on them, so that they fled before him. And an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with a spear in his hand while David was playing music. Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to keep watch over him, planning to kill him in the morning. David's wife, Michael, told him, if you do not save your life tonight, Tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window. He fled away and escaped. Michael took an idol and laid it on the bed. She put a net of goat's hair on its head, covered it with clothes. When Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David for themselves. He said, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. When the messengers came in, the idol was in the bed with the coverings of goat's hair on its head. Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go, why should I kill you? I've lived in Thailand uh, nearly 10 years now, and one thing that you kind of get used to when you live there that long is, um, living in a Buddhist country at least, is that there are idols everywhere. Um, they're, in Thailand, they are on street corners, they are in shopping malls, they're in homes, in the airport even, and of course they're at temples. And I have visited all kinds of temples during my time in Thailand, uh, but one thing that I began to notice that has really kind of helped me understand Thai religion more is that uh, there is a certain idol in these temples that tends to be the most popular. You know, so if you walk into a temple in Thailand, there's usually a, a large building. It's kind of the main building in the, the temple courts. And in that building, there's a large Buddha image and maybe dozens of other smaller images around that. Um, but that is not usually the place where people go to offer their prayers and to worship. Um, usually in most temples, there's uh, another idol, a smaller idol that's uh, off to the side in a smaller building, or maybe it's not in a building at all, it's, it's up against the wall. And uh, you know, this image is not the biggest image in the temple, it's not the most ornate, it's not the most, uh, but it is the most popular. And this image has a name. And the best way that I can, I can translate the name of this idol is the God of Instant Gratification. Now in America, I think we call that Amazon Prime, if I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> But the one thing about these idols in Thailand, and especially this God of instant gratification, is that you can ask for anything and expect to have it and receive it quickly. Plans, it doesn't have its own will. 
Um, it's simply there to fulfill your desires and to do what you want. The idol doesn't have a larger purpose. It doesn't have a story or a goal that it's working towards. And so when I teach new believers in Thailand, I'll often make this comparison and point out that the difference between worshiping an idol and worshiping uh, our God, the Christian God, is that the Christian God has a will. The Christian God has a goal and a plan that uh, God is working towards throughout history. And when we worship God and come to be a follower of Jesus, God is not to recruit God onto to our plans and our desires, but God recruits us into his story and his plans. And the Christian God has a will, has a direction that God is moving throughout history. And God is moving towards a final restoration, a final renewal of the creation. And so in the story of David, it's important to remember that David has been recruited into God's plans. You know, God's plans involved at their core, um, a goal for Israel to be the means through which God's reign would come on earth, the means through which all the nations, all the tribes of the earth would see God's glory and God's goodness would come to worship him too. And now God's plans have taken a bit of a new path. Um, you know, before Israel didn't have a king, uh, but then they wanted a king, so they got King Saul. But then not long after that, God rejected King Saul. And now David has been anointed. The shepherd boy from Bethlehem has been anointed to become the next king, a king after God's own heart. And so we and David can see where this story is going, where it's headed. And things start off really well. Uh, David is anointed. He's brought in to play music for Saul. Uh, he bravely slays the giant. Uh, David's then invited to live in King Saul's court. He becomes the leader of the army. He has success in battle, and everyone loves him and praises him. Even the king's own son, Jonathan, loves him and adores him. And he, uh, he offers him his royal robe. He gives him his spear, his sword. And basically, it's a symbolic gesture that I am handing over my rights to the throne to you. And so David, in this story, this story for David is moving along quite nicely uh, from a shepherd boy in small town Bethlehem to now next in line to sit on the throne of Israel. And so David has been recruited into God's plans, and those plans are moving along smoothly. It all seems to be going well, that is, until these women start singing this song. The women who hear the news of the slaying of the giant, they hear the news of the defeat of the Philistine army at the hands of a shepherd boy from Bethlehem. And they come out in celebration and begin to sing this song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And this song should be heard as a song of celebration for what Saul and his army commander David have done together in battle. And everyone should be happy and having a good time. Well, King Saul doesn't take it like that. He takes it as a song of comparison. They credit David with tens of thousands and me only with thousands. Saul's honor has been slighted. He has lost his face he has lost face because of this shepherd boy from Bethlehem. And if there's one thing I've learned from living in a country that has a monarchy is that you never, ever make the king lose face. Making the king lose face is a death sentence. And so very quickly, Saul turns on his favorite army commander and becomes very jealous of him. You see, Saul, King Saul knows where this story is going to. He knows what God's plans are and that it does not, these plans don't involve his family sitting on the throne much longer. Samuel has already told him that the kingdom would be stripped from him and given to a neighbor. And the most obvious person in Saul's mind to become that next king, to steal the throne from his family, is this shepherd boy that has turned into a warrior named David. And so Saul begins to work against the plans of God, begins to thwart what God is doing. His jealousy and paranoia become solely focused on David and trying to prevent him from taking the throne. And so in chapter 18, before what we read this morning, um, 
In chapter 18, the story of how these efforts is the story of how these efforts unfold, and it's actually quite messy and ugly. Uh, it's full of political scheming and, and maneuvering with Saul trying to outsmart David, and David, uh, you know, trying to maneuver to get closer to the throne, and Saul's trying to kill David, and it gets really dramatic and complicated and messy. It becomes what maybe can best be described as an episode of Game of Thrones. Now, confession, I haven't actually seen Game of Thrones, but I looked at the spoilers. Yeah, it's basically the, the story of Saul and David in 1 Samuel. Uh, so in chapter 18, Saul is trying to have David killed by sending him into battle and hoping that he will lose the battle and be struck down. But he can't come right out and say that because everyone loves David. Uh, but that's his plan. And, but David proves to be a skilled politician and a, and a great warrior, and he has success in battle and ends up marrying Saul's daughter, Michael. He's now closer to the throne than he's ever been. And the story, while now a little bit more complicated, is still moving towards God's intended goals, to have David sit on the throne as Israel's king. And so David is successful. He's the king's son-in-law. Jonathan loves him. The people of Israel love him. He is successful. And even Saul's best attempts to outmaneuver him have failed. It's all set up quite nicely. But in our text today, things have turned a little more serious. It is no longer the subtle strategic political maneuvering that we saw before, but now Saul is openly talking of murdering David. He's openly recruiting others into his plot. He ups his Game of Thrones, so to speak. He's completely driven by fear and paranoia. He can feel the kingdom slipping from his hands. And so after another successful battle against the Philistines, David is back in the, in the king's throne room playing music for Saul. But instead of David's music soothing Saul and and soothing his mind and his heart, King Saul is overcome by an evil spirit, overcome with rage and jealousy, and the spear he's holding in his hand, he hurls it towards David and hopes to pin him against the wall and kill him. And as that spear whizzes by David's head, he knows he can no longer stay there. And so he runs away, he flees. He flees the palace and, and runs away from the, the place that he's so nicely positioned to sit on next, that throne room that he was going to be sitting on next. So David runs away and heads to his own home, back to Michael, his wife. But Saul pursues him, sends servants to kill him. They wait outside his house. Michael ends up letting David get out through a window during the night. And David is on the run again. This time he runs far away from King's Court, far away from his wife, from his friend Jonathan. And David will never get a step closer to that throne room until Saul's death. And so in a matter of a few days, the story that seemed to be heading towards God's will is turned completely around. David is no longer close to becoming king. He no longer has the favor of the Israelite people. He's now a fugitive and running the opposite direction of where God has called him. And the thing that strikes me about this part of the story is how David is no longer in control. David can only be passive and only react to the moves of Saul. There's no bravery. There's no slaying of giants. There are no confident words of faith. There are no words at all just running and fleeing and survival. There's no movement of, uh, towards God's will for him. There's no forward progress in this plan for him to become king. And maybe more than that, everything has been thrown in reverse and it's moving away from that. God's will looks as if it's weak and vulnerable to the messiness of life, to the scheming of political actors and to the human wills that would oppose it. And so maybe the story sounds and familiar, uh, sounds uh, and feels all too familiar to us because we too have been recruited into God's plans, into his story, 
And God is not like a, a Buddhist idol who uh, is only there to, to do our will and has no, no goals of its own. Uh, no, the God that we follow has a will and a plan. And he's brought us on board to be a part. He's brought us along for the journey. We've been called to be a part of God's restoration plan. God desires to re reconcile himself to the world, to make all things new, a new heavens, a new earth, to recreate each one of us. But it often feels and looks like that story, that goal that we know God is working towards, that we're getting further away from it each day, not closer. Um, I feel this tension, um, this tension of you know, believing in God's restoration uh, for my own life, but, but not necessarily seeing it. And I, I feel the most when it's a Wednesday night and I'm going to bed and I realize that, you know, I didn't get through another day without getting frustrated at my kids or yelling at my kids. Uh, another day that uh, math homework took a long time and lots of tears. Another day that getting dinner on the table seemed like it took an act of Congress just so we could eat the same thing we always eat. Another day where ministry was hard and the church that I minister with doesn't seem to be growing. Another day where a Bible study was canceled or worship didn't go well, or the boys at the Urban Light Center didn't show up for an activity that we had planned, or another day where the biggest obstacle to keeping the will of, uh, the biggest obstacle keeping the will of God from moving forward is my own sinfulness. It's on those days that God's plan for restoration seemed nothing more than a pipe dream and certainly nothing that we're moving closer towards. And I imagine if you're overworked or in a job that you don't like, but you have to keep to pay the bills, or if you're struggling to keep up with your schoolwork so you could earn that degree, uh, or your marriage isn't what you'd want it to be, or you have to take care of aging parents, um, or you're just struggling to get through the day-to-day, -day, the, the boring and mundane aspects of, of everyday life, that God's restoration can seem really far away. And maybe it's just turning on the news and seeing the darkness and the despair in our world, and it makes it seem like that plan that God has for us is so far off. And so when our own lives lack this sense of movement towards God's goal for the world, when our own lives lack a sense that we are caught up in a journey that is actually going somewhere, or when we feel like God's will for our lives is, is going in the wrong direction or it's at a standstill, it can be really hard to even begin to think how God might be using us and wanting us to participate in his plans outside of these immediate concerns that we have. You know, at Highland, uh, I, I think God, you know, we believe that God has called us to participate in God's mission of restoration. We really believe that God is about restoring this church. And we really believe that God is about restoring this city through helping us helping the homeless. And we really believe that God is about restoring the world, the world through this church in places like Brazil, Southeast Asia, the Middle East. But it can be really hard to feel like we're actually getting anywhere sometimes. In the midst of preacher searches and selecting new elders, and figuring out how to, how to form community in a church that's this large, uh, it often doesn't seem that what we do as a church is moving us any closer to the restoration that God desires. And so to even think about restoring Abilene through ending homelessness and renovating an old hospital to provide housing for people, that seems like a huge undertaking and so difficult in the midst of all the other things that we're doing uh, that we don't even know where to begin. And we all know God is calling us to work towards these things, that God desires these things, and that God desires all of us to grow in our love for God, our love for each other, our love for the world, and to grow in our willingness to pick up the cross and follow Jesus. But when tragedy strikes or cancer enters your life or you have broken relationships, it can seem that this journey we all signed up for, it's supposed to be moving towards completion, 
It's in a standstill. Like we're not getting any closer than when we first began. And so God's plans for the world seem so easily thwarted at times. And so for David, it certainly seems so. David is further from the throne than when he slew Goliath. And now that King Saul is attempting to kill him, David has fled. He's run away, fled his own home, his own wife. And it looks as if, as if God's plan for him to become king is being thwarted too. But David doesn't just flee to nowhere, but he runs to Samuel. And so I'll read from 1 Samuel chapter 19. Now David fled and escaped. He came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. He and Samuel went and settled at Naoth. Saul was told, David is at Naoth and Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. When they saw the company of the prophets in a frenzy with Samuel standing in charge of them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also fell into a prophetic frenzy. When Saul was told, he sent other messengers, and they also fell into a frenzy. Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also fell into a frenzy. Then he himself went to Ramah. He came to the great well that is in Seku. He asked, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, they are at Naoth and Ramah. He went there toward Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him. As he was going, he fell into a prophetic frenzy until he came to Naoth and Ramah. He too stripped off his clothes, and he too fell into a frenzy before Samuel. He lay naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Yes, David is running. He's getting further from the throne of Israel, further from his calling to be king. But David doesn't run back to Bethlehem. He doesn't run back to some, some field to, to be a shepherd again. No, David runs back to the person who anointed him and set him on his path of kingship in the first place. He goes back to Samuel, the, the prophet and the judge. And so Samuel is the only one who could remind David of his calling. The one person who could remind David that he was anointed to be the next king of Israel. That he was the one whom God had chosen to continue God's plans. But when David arrives to Samuel and Ramah, Saul finds out where he is, and so he sends uh, people to go and kill him. But before they can do that, the Spirit of God shows up. And three different groups of men arrive to kill David. But instead of killing David, they fall into prophetic frenzy and are unable to do anything. You know, so finally, Saul decides to go himself, and the Spirit of God falls upon him too. Except this time, the Spirit of God does not bring honor to Saul. It does not uh, bring God's approval. But the Spirit takes control of Saul to keep him from thwarting God's plans. The Spirit of God strips Saul of his power and authority and leaves him naked and in shame. God becomes a refuge for David and keeps him safe from almost certain death. But I think more importantly, God works through this to protect God's own plans, to make sure that God's desires, God's will, and God's story continue to move forward when it had seemed that they had come to a standstill. And David isn't doing much of anything here. He's not slaying giants. He's not killing Philistines. He's not making shrewd political moves. He's not even saying a word or taking any action that might move him towards the throne for which he had been promised, which he had been anointed. David is just passive and vulnerable, just as much as before. But where David is vulnerable and helpless to do anything, God's spirit is powerful and active and moving. You know, even though we see David fleeing before his enemies, I think it would be a mistake 
to see this as David wavering or giving up on the calling and the anointing that he had received. You know, we have Psalm 57, which we read this morning, and uh, the traditional setting, uh, as Jeff said this morning, in, in David's life for Psalm 57 is when David is in a cave, and that's later on in, in the story of David and Saul. He's in a cave, and Saul and his men are pursuing him and, and trying to kill him, and he has nowhere to run. And it's this setting that the tradition says David praises God for being a refuge, for being a protection from his enemies. But David goes on in that psalm to praise God, not just for his protection, but because God fulfills his purposes for David. He believes that Saul's threats will not prevent God's plans from moving forward. And so in that psalm we heard this morning, David says, my heart is steadfast, O God. And we pray this morning, my heart is steadfast. In the midst of fleeing from his enemies and getting uh, further away from God's plans, David can claim that his heart is steadfast. Even in the midst of trouble, David does not waver in his trust of God and what God has called him to do. You know, it was David's steadfast heart that led him to run where there was nothing else he could do to avoid the pursuit of his enemies. But he didn't simply run away to survive. He ran towards his calling and towards God. And God was faithful. God was faithful to his promises and to his plans. And so what about us? What do we do when, when God's plans for us, God's plans for, for restoration and renewal in our own lives seem to be at a standstill? What does it mean to have a steadfast heart in these circumstances? And will God do anything to show that he is still working when it seems that he isn't? I think what we do is we keep showing up. We keep showing up. We keep showing up in prayer. We keep showing up in worship. We keep coming here to this church to join and serve together. We keep having fellowship with one another. You know, we come to worship every week, every Sunday, partly so that we can be reminded that God is still working towards his goal. That God is still bringing about restoration even when the circumstances of our lives seem to say that he isn't. When things in our lives seem to say that we're moving the opposite direction, we come here to be reminded that that's not the case. And when we worship and fellowship together, we are also able to see the spirit of God moving in those around us. We're able to hear the testimonies of others about how God is bringing new life, about how God is making a new creation among us. And we are able to hear the story of the cross and be reminded of our baptism and our journey from death to life and how far we've come and be reminded that the God who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. You know, for decades now, Highland Church has prayed the Lord's Prayer every Sunday together. Every Sunday we come together and we pray, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And even when it doesn't look like it's coming, we have steadfast hearts to continue to ask and to pray that God would make it happen. And if we keep showing up, we can be confident that God will show up too. That maybe even in surprising ways, God will keep moving us along towards the restoration of all things, will keep his story going, and will allow us to take part. Uh, back in March, earlier this year, uh, there was an article published in the Christianity Today uh, journal, the magazine, and um, the article is about a church planning revival in Thailand that's been going on the last couple of years. Uh, but if you've been a missionary in Thailand, you know that there is no such thing as church planning revivals in Thailand. Uh, missionaries have been working in Thailand to plant churches for nearly 200 years. 
And even after almost 200 years, Christianity in Thailand is still only, or less than 1% of the population, maybe less than half a percent. And for whatever reason, the gospel just has not taken root in Thailand or in other parts of Southeast Asia like it has in other parts of the world. You know, missionaries spend years in Thailand and see very little growth. You know, I don't know that there are any mega churches in Thailand. So when I, I read this article about this church playing revival in Thailand, you know, I was quite surprised, um, maybe even a little bit skeptical. Okay, I was a lot skeptical. Um, they had lots of statistics in this article, and, and one of them was, you know, the article said in, in 2017, uh, a group of church leaders um, had gotten together, and they, they planted 74 house churches and baptized 782 people in the span of 54 days. Like I said, I was skeptical. So I went to ask uh, and talk to the man who was mentioned in the article, and he confirmed that the churches were growing as fast as the article said. And so my next question was how? You know, what are these churches doing that is different or new that churches in Thailand have failed to do for 200 years? And as he described how this all started and described how these churches were growing, uh, what he said did not sound any different than what churches and missionaries have been doing for years, for centuries. There was no new method. There was no new strategy. There was no new message. He said these leaders simply took seriously Jesus' call to share the gospel in every town and village. They would find a village where they knew somebody. They would invite people there to hear the good news. They would tell the story of who were baptized. They were sent out to other neighborhoods and villages to do the same. And so I kept waiting for the catch, for the gimmick. You know, what's the, the big reveal? And there wasn't any. That was it. It was simple. They went out to villages and shared the, the story of Jesus. So I was left to conclude that maybe the only thing that was different about this church planning revival was that God had showed up in new ways, that God's spirit was moving in surprising ways, and that though it has seemed for the last 200 years that there has been no movement in God's plan or very little movement in God's plan for Thailand, that maybe God's will in Thailand had been thwarted. God's spirit has shown up and moved Thailand closer to the restoration that it so desperately needs. And if God's spirit can move like that in Thailand, and do new things, God can certainly do that in Abilene, Texas, and in the life of this church. When we have a steadfast, steadfast hearts and remain hopeful and faithful, God will show up and continue his work.